Hey guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. As per usual, I'm your host, Steve Hall. I don't often introduce myself, but to any newcomers, I am Steve Hall of Revive Stronger, and I am with, again, Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization for another fantastic interview uh, all about hypertrophy. So this is part two, so make sure you've caught part one. There's some fantastic questions. We've had some fantastic feedback, and this kind of Q&A is all setting us up for kind of setting our taste buds ready for the May conference at the end of May in London, where Mike is coming all the way over from the US to the UK to present all about muscle hypertrophy, all the in-detail stuff, way more in-depth than we're probably going to go here, but this is a good kind of taster for that. So if this kind of gets your fancy, definitely check the links below where we'll have all the links about the seminar, how you can get tickets. They're going on sale very, very shortly. They'll probably be on sale by the time you listen to this. So getting on that is going to be fantastic. But without further ado, we'll get straight into the questions because that is what we're here for. Uh, so the first question to Mike is from Dave Beeston, who has asked quite an open question, but I know you can explore this. Active recovery phases for bodybuilders. Do they need to do these? And actually, I have a, a bit of an aside question on this, which I'd be interested to know about, is I've heard people reference that when training for hypertrophy, so bodybuilders, they don't need to actively try and overreach and would be better off taking a more subtle approach and wouldn't kind of want that overreaching period. So that kind of goes along with a, a bit with activity, uh, active recovery phases, but it might be a slight aside. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Mike. Yeah, that's awesome. Really great questions. Um, Steve, let me clarify. He means um, active recovery phase for people interested in physique development as a primary purpose, correct? Yeah not just generally in sport training. No, yeah, for, he said specifically bodybuilders. Okay, great. Yeah, great questions. I'll take the second one first because I think it's the shorter explanation. There is some decent evidence, um, decent preliminary, and it concords with physiologically what we would expect to happen, which isn't something we would just go sell the house on, but it's a good beginner thought. And this indicates to us that, especially in probably higher level lifters, extreme forms of high level homeostatic disruption, while unsustainable in chronic training, may have an effect on hypertrophy, which has a delayed response. Particular uh, to that is extreme levels of damage may cause... Um, satellite cellular structure to donate myonuclei to the main muscle cells in greater proportion than conventional meat and potatoes sort of training. If this were the case, and it seems to be maybe the case, it would not be remotely physiologically surprising. That's part one. Part two is because it makes so much sense that it would happen physiologically, right? It's huge emergency response. Your body's like, well, Jesus, God, we better grow because this is insane. Um, because of that response, um, then, or because of the at least theoretical possibility that that happens with some decent support, we can't rule out that it doesn't happen. And because the principle of overload necessitates that we go harder and harder and harder in the gym, we might as well take that one week at the end and let it all hang out to some extent overreach, deload, etc. Because then we get the possible but likely benefit of that myonucleation or myonuclear donation. So because there is good physiological rationale and some limited evidence for the fact that overreaching and hypertrophy can result in more enhanced myonucleation, which later pr presents as more hypertrophy, but not immediately, um, then it's, there's a good reason to probably try to do it. The related point is that we, uh, it makes sense logically, and there is some decent evidence. So if we were to try to say that we should, don't have to do it, that would be more of an uphill battle. Like if you tell someone, well, there is no benefits of overreaching, both the physiological rationale is not on your side, and the limited evidence that does exist is not on your side. So um, it, I understand where people are coming from, and they have a very good point when they say overreaching is not necessary, let's not risk injury, let's not risk um, 
you know, accumulating too much fatigue that we have to bring down anyway. Um, and that's all fine and well, but the potential benefits, I think, outweigh the potential costs and the risks of not doing enough, especially for higher level individuals. So do beginners and intermediates need to overreach much? No, probably not. Advanced bodybuilders, and this is confirmed by the training practices of most bodybuilders, you don't just grow muscle by doing kind of pre-programmed, get the work done routines at the high level. At a high level is very likely you have to present absolutely super maximal efforts to grow. What I'm not saying is that there's sufficient evidence of this phenomenon for us to switch to an overreach deload um, switching paradigm, like extreme DUP, where for a week you go nuts and then for a week you basically deload. A week you go nuts and then a week you basically deload. I don't think so. I think that at the end of a four or five or six week mesocycle of accumulation, that last week should probably be pretty tough to get at least some of the benefits. And it has to be tough anyway, right? And we're just pushing a little further and the deload week after is going to heal the fatigue anyway. I think the trade-off is worth it. So that's my answer to the overreaching part. Does that, that make sense or can I clear any of that up? Yeah, I mean, I, for just from my reading in the like different textbooks, sports textbooks, and they talk about the fact that advanced trainees really have to build and accumulate a peak of stress to create an adaption yeah. to occur. And it's kind of like you break a bone, it get, grows back stronger. Every time you have to break it, you have to present a higher stress. That's kind of the way I yeah. see that biological adaption. Yeah, for sure. It happens in nearly every other studied system, and there's some very rudimentary evidence that happens in muscle hypertrophy. It's just not something I'm familiar. I am familiar. It's not something I'm uh, comfortable just being like that. Uh, it might not, but I think the chances of that are much lower than it working. Um, but at the same time, it's not probably critical to most levels of adaptation. So you should still mostly train way below thresholds and. You know, you move from your minimum effective volume over the course of the cycle, you move to your max recoverable, and then extra recoverable, you've overreached. <laughs> it's going to take an overreach to hit that with that much fatigue and um, maybe just go slightly over it, or maybe not. Um, advanced athletes probably best serve going over it every now and again, and then deload. Mm -hmm. um, so as for active rest, you know, Yes, I think it's important. Uh, bodybuilding, so I actually teach this in class. You can line up all of the sports on how important active rest is to them. Uh, endurance running. You need a lot of active rest because it beats you up in the same exact patterns of force disrupts bone and tendon and ligament so much that if you try to run hard all the time and take just a week here and there light, you're going to run yourself into the ground. Almost all high-level runners and marathon runners, etc., will take a month here and there to just do mostly swimming and cycling. They still train okay, um, but they just get away almost completely from, from running because that much pounding is just not survivable to humans. Then you move on and you get to sports like rugby, American football, MMA, where taking a couple of weeks here and there once or twice a year is a good idea because you get so physically beat up. Mm -hmm. And we can go down the list of sports um, that are more disruptive homeostatically to the release because we would be very technical about this and scientific principles of strength training, we get very technical. Um, we're talking about the, the longest recovery curve, the SRA principle, right? Uh, we're talking about the healing of bone disruption, tendon disruption, ligament disruption, and to some extent, uh, hormonal axis disruption, which can take weeks to heal if it's gotten way out of hand. You know, you're not restocking glycogen in mm -hmm. an active rest, that's for sure. So, Bodybuilding in the ranking between the you know something like uh, endurance running here and something like maybe golf here where you can play golf year round and really not pay for it, bodybuilding's probably right here where you know people like to say bodybuilders like to think they're hardcore and, and in some of the most important ways like sticking to a diet and sticking to monotonous training they are very hardcore. Disruptive training to bones, tendons, and ligaments. I mean, unless you're that leg press guy in that one video oh, no. or something. <laughs> he needs a lot of active rest. I knew I was going to have to bring that up. My students requested to see that video today in class. Oh, no. Um, and I obliged them, but I looked away. Um, 
terrible. But in any case, <laughs> go ahead. No, I was, I've completely, I've seen people talk about it. I haven't watched the leg press video. Don't. So I don't. don't. <laughs> There's nothing to see. Don't, don't watch it. You're not missing anything. It's exactly what you think it is. Uh, so, <laughs> um, basically, most bodybuilding, especially properly done, is disruptive, highly disruptive for the musculature, but musculature heals really fast. It's just not very disruptive to joints and uh, joints and bones. And if you screw up your diet enough to really screw over your hormones, sure. But most people don't. Um, so I would say the following: taken into the fact that yes, active rest still accomplishes some things because you will take some disruption. You will, uh, and psychologically too, you can't always pound it in all the time. I would say that my basic guideline from which to build your own recommendations is two weeks a year, preferably in sequence, I would say go and do an active rest. The way I do my active rest over two weeks is in the first week, I or either first or second, it doesn't really matter which one's first or second, I train really pretty light and I train uh, very low volume. And the second week, I don't train. And I usually put the not training week first because I'm not insane, but it depends. And I've only recently started doing this. I used to be an idiot and not do this, uh, but everything has gotten better since I started doing this. Um, especially what really put me over the edge is uh, talking to Greg Knuckles about the outcome of his uh, layoff Remember the layoff stuff he put, like the long layoff and return to muscle fitness afterwards? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the specifics in that article I, I was interested in but maybe didn't exactly disagree with, but a lot of the general theory that Greg brings up is just wildly instructive to say, look, if you're worried about losing muscle mass, you're wrong. If you're worried about it coming back full steam, you're wrong too because it's probably going to come back even more than full steam. So... Um, and if you talk to Broderick uh, Chavez, my coach, I mean, if I if I say Broderick, can I take two weeks off the year from not lifting weights? He'd be like, "Yeah, you nuts! Why even ask me that question?" So he's going to say it's way better than than training straight through. Um, what I do in that week that I don't train is, and I'm actually I don't know if I'm looking forward to this week, but I'm definitely going to have one of these weeks probably this summer. Is um, I go with friends like on a road trip or go visit people in faraway lands and just other than taking in a high amount of protein, which I just never not do. Um, I just like live like a normal person. It's really weird. I eat junk food. I eat food. I eat what I feel like. I don't train. I take walks. I watch TV. I fall asleep whenever I wake up whenever I'm just floating in the wind. <laughs> um, and that kind of psychological release becomes painful by the end of the trip so when i'm and sometimes we go camping by the end of camping i want nothing more than the cold bland heartless pale light of one room with a gym and a program and perfect macros to get to ascend to the next level of say in godhood <laughs> but that's a really good sign that you're really ready to start training again there's nothing you love the training process again and you will not fall out of love with it. Uh, if you miss it for a week, you'll just fall more in love with it. I promise. Um, so I think that's a really good idea. So at least I think a week of really easy training and then a week off completely at least once a year is a good idea. Um, this idea is confirmed by almost all practicing high level bodybuilders, especially the bigger ones. Um, you would think like, man, these guys are all drug addicts and they're super, you know, they take a bunch of drugs and they train crazy all the time and they're super weird body issues. And a lot of that's true. Uh, but even those guys will step away from all of it. I know for a fact that like, uh, a, ma a man with, with none of these issues, uh, was a very esteemed gentleman, John Meadows, uh, is on record saying that he basically goes a, almost a month, I think, at various times without really training much uh, or at all. And just like the wise man that he is in his mid-40s, he says, look, if you think it's not all going to come back, 
month back to training is some kind of revelation. Like you put on two pounds of muscle a week. It's insane. The myonuclear domain doesn't, or the myonuclear insertion, the number of nuclei you have in your muscles, that doesn't go away at least for years and probably ever. You will get all of your muscle back so fast you'll have no idea it happened. And the healing and the recovery is more than worth it. So the really good question to ask isn't so much, or it is the good question to ask is, what are the benefits of an active recovery? The other very good question to ask is, what are the costs of not taking an active recovery? I'll put it to you this way, a really easy example. You know, like everything feels fine and you're a bodybuilder and you took deload weeks and everything, but look, there's one part on the front of your shoulder. It just is like, it's not an injury. It just, it just, I don't know. It just feels a little bit weird. You take an active rest, it's gone forever. I've got injuries where I don't even remember. Even like people are like, have you ever hurt your back? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, why? And you're like, I don't even remember, but I remember it hurting. You can't even have an intuitive feel anymore. That's how healed it is, which is maximally healed. Mm-hmm. If you don't take an active rest, you'll probably be okay. But there's a chance that you'll have those injuries accumulating and turning into serious problems. And over the years, you don't want that. So if you want to be in physique sport for a couple of years, don't take any active rest. You want to be in it for a decade or two, active rest is a good idea. Two weeks is great. If you're running really crazy drug protocols, et cetera, maybe a little longer, probably not even. Um, Anything more than two weeks of easy slash no training, I become a little bit skeptical unless you're really, really healing from injuries that are really, really messed up. And that's a different category altogether. So I would say anything up to two weeks, uh, I've got a lot of time for that. And three weeks, sounds great. Four weeks, you can do it. People do it. Ronnie Coleman used to do it all the time. Um, I don't know if that's optimal anymore, but I think at least two weeks, anything less than two weeks, I think you're just addicted to training and just have no damn sense about long-term progression. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. And um, I, on a related note, actually, because I know you brought up a lot of the kind of top-level bodybuilders and talked about I, I'm very ignorant to drug usage and things like that. Is it related to their drug use or is this definitely still applicable to natural athletes as well, just to clarify? drug guys if they want to live a moderate term amount of time and if they want their drugs to keep working like they're supposed to will take periods of a month to three or four where they take either no drugs or they take very low levels of very basic drugs to let all of their receptor densities expand and let their health stabilize so they don't have to be on tons of gear all the time And usually they'll pair that with very minimal training volumes um, or an active recovery phase and or an active recovery phase. And um, naturals have no need for the drug recycling, but because they don't heal and snap back as fast as drug guys, they have more of a need for active rest to begin with. So I think the two balance out and natural athletes still need two to three weeks per year. And for God's sake, Steve, can we please admit how little time that is? Just be like Christmas holiday for Christ's sake. Like don't train super hard the before Christmas between Christmas and new year's, just go to parties and have fun, watch TV and then new Year's start training again. It is that easy. We're not, we're not talking about like, uh, you know, fall 2017, no training, right? <laughs> so I could understand. And, and I still, are parts of that going to be painful for people? Yes. Yes. When I was younger, and by that I mean up to last year, I didn't want to take even a week off of training. Um, nowadays, I've gotten myself into a, a mode where I think I can do a week off of training and not go completely insane. Uh uh, one road trip with my friends, I think, is just fine. The way I got there was was this. It wasn't any kind of – I don't think it was any kind of growing up I did psychologically, unfortunately. I just did it once or twice recently, and the return to fitness afterwards was so miraculous, and the injury healing was so miraculous that I was like, this is a really good idea. Uh, people have this understanding uh, or this – conception that when they're not grinding it in the gym, they're not getting better. And when they're just having fun with their friends, they feel guilty. They feel guilty for eating regular foods. 
And I'm going to say something a little bit controversial here. If you are interested in being as good as you can be, you should damn well feel guilty about that shit. You're not going to be a machine. You're not going to be a warrior if you can just chill out with your friends all the damn time. But if you feel guilty about it 100% of the time, you are operating under the illusion that it is not good for you to take a break 100% of the time. And when a good thing to remind yourself is when you are chilling with your friends for a week and just eating good food and traveling around or doing whatever, remind yourself that almost all of the great lifters, bodybuilders, weightlifters, powerlifters of the past, that even the crazy machine like Eastern European guys would take much more time off to do that. And they would be terribly out of form. The idea that you're supposed to train all the time at your hardest is actually an American and Western European idea. In Eastern Europe, and this is typified, Ilya Illin has done this before pretty publicly, a bunch of other people. Uh, you're not supposed to be. There's literally, um, in, in Russian, uh, there's uh, there's like a question you can ask someone, like, like it's like, are you in shape? And that means not in physical shape necessarily, but are you in your athletic shape that you're supposed to be? Mm -hmm. um, huge understanding. Like if you literally, like if you if you're at a dinner with an American lifter and a bunch of other guys, and you're like, "Well, what what you doing for your workout today? Like, what'd you do yesterday?" And they tell you, "Like, oh, I'm hitting 700 for fives," and you're like, "Oh man, that's off your best." And like, oh, I know, and it sounds really bad. All a Russian lifter has to tell you is. Yes, just before me, or like I'm, I'm just not in, in shape right now. And all the other Russian lifters are like, oh, cool. And he could be doing legitimately, like I've seen the Russians train in Australia when I was there for seminars. They barely did anything. They were all out of form, and they went to the Australia meet and had the worst results you've ever seen in your life. Like Andre Belayev squatted like 200k, deadlifted like 100k. It was just <laughs> off his best. It was ridiculous. It was like a joke, and. To them, that's totally normal because they know how fast everything comes back mm -hmm. and they know the importance of healing. Is there too an extreme view? Yes. Do bodybuilders take that much time off? No. But there's something to be said for when you feel guilty with your friends hanging out. You think, damn it, I should be training. I'm already not in the gym five or six days a week. Y your relaxation is in the company of the greatest athletes of all time. Men bigger and stronger and more muscular than you took more time off on purpose. So next time you feel guilty about taking time off when you're damn well supposed to, when your annual plan says, try to enjoy it as much as possible and be proud of the fact that you're doing the right thing. And when you see other people, let's say your friends go to a gym while you're hanging out with them just to do some cardio or go swimming and you check out the weight room and you just walk around. I've been, I've done this on my active recovery where I've just been in a weight room sitting or I'll just come up to a machine, put like 10 kilos on and just be like, wee, just like <laughs> do dumb shit. There's some guy there that gives you the eye. There always is. And he's pretty jacked and he's looking at you and he's probably thinking that cocksucker's not even training. Like he's just here fucking around. You should see me at my top four, motherfucker, because I'm going to come back in three months. And you're going to be like, oh my God, look at that guy. Be like, yeah, guess what? Guess how I got there. Training and resting at the right times. So I want to make sure that people understand what I'm saying. Yeah, if you're being lazy, you better feel guilty. But if you're doing it on purpose for performance, you should feel proud and relaxed and really let go and be free and forget about lifting and live the rest of life. There's this whole great thing about life, folks, by the way, that they, the lifters don't tell you about, but it's there for all of us. Um, live it. Do it. And then a week later or two weeks later, come back to the grind. The grind always welcomes you back. I guarantee it. And it's going to be better for the grind. That's the big purpose. No, I absolutely love this because as someone who is a warrior in the gym <laughs> and uh, someone who's basically that obsessive person and who I probably, I struggled, I haven't been doing deloads my entire lifting career. They've been more the last five years and everyone I introduce like deloads to maintenance periods to, which is something I've more come accustomed to recently where I've taken that low volume period. I feel so good coming out of it that it's just so worth it. And having you come and like someone who's obviously very intelligent, giving out the scientific kind of guidance that, yeah, active rest periods are really important. I think there are a lot of people that don't need to worry about it. Like people who just don't train that hard generally. But for people like for us sure. or a lot of the people listening to the podcast, who probably do train really hard year round and do probably get anxious when they're on holiday and can't get to the gym. They can now relax because they're actually doing a good thing. Um, what I would say is in terms of, structuring this in your periodized plan 
I've heard you talk about having it after a maintenance period. So maybe you've just finished a mass, you're doing a maintenance low volume period, and then taking active recovery before kind of a cutting period. Is that the best time? Is that where you'd like to put it? Or do you kind of dot it around? You know, that's my ideal choice. People say, <laughs> so we can talk about, I think the physiologically, it's probably very defensible. Um, there are other times physiologically where it could be a little bit defensible as well. Maybe like right after a bodybuilding show or right after you're the most cut. There could be a debate about that. But I'd like to focus on the psychology for a second. One of the best things about getting cut is the several weeks after where you're in the gym and you're still very lean, you're leanest, and you're on carbs for the first time in like weeks, on carbs, <laughs> like a drug. And it really is like a drug at that point. You get pumps that are just otherworldly. Like you legitimately feel like a superhero. Um, that's what we lift for. So to tell someone that right after a bodybuilding show, they're supposed to go and take a, two weeks off. There's guys that do that. I just don't get it. Um, where I'd like to, and I think momentum wise, it's also not cool because for most people, if you lose a bodybuilding show, you're fucking pissed and you want to train. If you win a bodybuilding show, you're excited and you want to train <laughs> and you want to see yourself in top form training and pumped and ridiculous. Is there anything better in life than being the most jacked, most lean you've ever been and eating sushi after post-workout meals? Like, I just don't think life gets much better than that. Enjoy it. But after your maintenance phase, you already don't look your best. Your fatigue is already pretty low. Great time to cap it. Like an active rest after a whole season of cutting might not be enough. Like you haven't dissipated your base level of fatigue. Mm -hmm. So why are you trying to go for super normal dissipation, right? The good thing is, is that the maintenance phase already established a really low fatigue point already. Now you can really clean up. You see what I'm saying? Like, um, it's almost like, you know, if you run a kitchen at a restaurant, do you do the deep cleaning right after a big party of people leaves? Or do you wait until your night crew cleans the restaurant fundamentally and then you get the cleaners to come in and clean specially because they don't have yeah. to clean all the other junk normally, right? And after maintenance phase, so, so one of the things that hurts, let's just be completely honest, one of the things that hurts us deeply psychologically, all of us probably listening to this podcast, and including speaking, <laughs> um, is the dissipation in the mirror of your hard-earned results. And that's why people don't like to take breaks. Like if I put you on some kind of crazy drugs that you got better as your break wore on, you just never train again. <laughs> like, this is amazing. I don't give a shit about training. I look better every day I don't train. You don't want to wake up and kind of pull at your flab and be like, fuck, or you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't fucking even look like I train. Right after a show, fuck that, dude. I don't want to see that shit. I don't want to see my culmination and then simultaneous deterioration. But check this out. At the end of a massing phase before your maintenance phase, you're big as hell. You're strong. You already don't look that great. And you got months to get used to it. Your massing phase was weeks and weeks and weeks. You're already well used to not looking your crispest. You're not addicted to it anymore. People are like, oh, you know how you feel? They're like, meh. They go, hey, you're not your leanest. I know. After the maintenance phase, you look even worse, right? That's all. Not tissue loss, but just water and um, and, and some temporary tissue loss and stuff. And uh, you look like whatever. So when you're taking that easy training week and then after that a week with your friends to go travel around and just fuck off, um, you don't walk into a gym and see a guy who's ripped and tan and jacked and just get jealous and be like, damn it, I could be him in three days of fucking training if you let me train. You're like, man, I'm way off of that shit. I don't even remember what that's like. You know <laughs> what I mean? It makes sense that at the end of when you're already well used to looking like crap, yeah. you just finish it off. Just finish it off right there and then. And for the last benefit, boy, does that give you an incredible momentum into your cutting phase. And that's not even up for debate. You come back to training after that, whether or not you take a, a phase just of isocaloric to get your muscle back or you start cutting, which by the way, still gets all of your muscle back because you're recomp like insane. Yes, the recomp is going to be mind-boggling, and that'll motivate you in and of itself. But it's not just that. You ask someone, hey, 
when do you want to be your most motivated? Is it at the beginning of a mass phase? So let's say we did the thing where we did a show, took two weeks off, and then started a mass phase. At the beginning of a mass phase, you don't need to be extra motivated because you're lean and jacked and you get food. You love training. Training's not any more fun than it is then, right? I mean, awesome. You're getting a strength back really quickly. I mean, it's amazing. When do you need, when is it best to be most motivated? Well, before a big ass long cut, you know, you got 16 weeks or 20 weeks ahead of you. You might as well finish the act of rest and, and literally feel inside like I never want to take a single second off the gym ever again. I'm done living a normal life. I hate normal people. I hate myself. I want to lock myself in the hyperbolic time chamber in Dragon Ball Z okay. and just train forever and never see another fucking human soul until I've ascended to the next level. That's exactly what you want to feel like before you start cutting. That's ideal. If you feel like anything else, you're going to be a world of hurt. You ever start cutting and you're like, ooh, I don't know about this. I don't know if it's a good idea. You're going to shit the bed. I guarantee yeah. it. Um, certainly for a show diet. This is not going to work out that well. So before you start cutting, be easy, let go, be loose, eat protein, and just don't worry about anything else for a week or two. You're going to have an absolutely rock star result. Because your body remembers its past states incredibly well, recomposition happens incredibly fast. I just did this. I took a deload, um, and I took basically a couple, uh, some days off of training. Or sorry, a deload. Um, so like this was like eight weeks ago. I finished my maintenance phase, and towards the end of the maintenance phase, I actually got sick in the middle of the maintenance phase, so I didn't train for like a whole week. Um, uh, I like looked decent, like not great when I came back to my fat loss diet within about two weeks, I remember training and I pulled off my shirt and just the tank top. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> I'm back to looking like I did at the top of my mass phase. I, I look insane. And then it was all down, you know, downhill or uphill or however I want to say it. After that, I just look better and better and better and better. Weight loss progresses quickly. Everything feels amazing because you're completely recovered. So uh, I beat this one to death, uh, yeah. question-wise. But um, I think a lot of people could benefit from hearing that. Yeah, I think coupling it, I mean, even people, like you said, coupling it with when you're ill. So if you are feeling like you can't go in and do an overloading workout, is this a time you can just do an active recovery period, kind of take a week off, take a deload week, or like you say, kind of holidays. A lot of people probably can just program it in with a holiday. Like you're away for two weeks rather than stress about getting to gyms, do some body weight stuff, do some light stuff, keep active, walk around, and then enjoy yeah. the games when you get back. 100%. I just wanted to touch on, I know you talked about uh, post-show coming out and not doing and just going to a mass. I know we've talked about that before. I just want to make sure I've got it right in that. I know after a show generally you've been doing kind of your highest volume training, um, maybe not the week before you kind of doing a bit of a deload. Do you think it's, you still have that kind of week or so to like have lowish volumes before building back up? I think you can go either way with it. I think that the week of the show should be profoundly easy training. If it's not, you're doing things completely wrong. So you already have a deload week there. Mm -hmm. I think ideally the week right after the show um, can be either pretty high volume, low volume, or very high volume, as long as that post-show rebound doesn't last more than a couple of weeks. I think three or four weeks after that post-show rebound, you should take a pretty serious deload week and then get back into your regular massing. Um, and I think that if you choose to do very low volumes during that time, that's fine. Next, after you deload, should be high volume massing, or you can flip it into your highest volumes here, right? Metabolite training type stuff. But then when you go back to regular massing, it should be hardcore heavy um, and lower reps to get the different kind of stimulus. Um, it depends on how fatigued you are after your show. Some people after the show process, they're super messed up. Some people, myself included, um, after the show, I don't feel, uh, I feel great. Uh, the week of the show, I take very easy. You're supposed to do that. So I think that's a very minor detail people tend to overthink. If a show linearly had you going harder and harder up until the last week when it was the hardest, I would for sure deload right after a show. But in this case, you can deload right after, that's fine. Or you can uh, hit it hard. I think it depends on how your fatigue is at the time. 
Okay, cool. No, brilliant. Uh, and I think, yeah, just it, again, it's one of those individual things with fatigue. But yeah, we beat that one to death. So let's get on to another question um, from Tome uh, Alves. I think I've, I've actually mispronounced that because he is foreign. But mm. um, massing on high carbs and getting lots of protein from lower quality sources. Is this a concern? So things like pastas, breads, if you're on high carbohydrates at 400 grams plus and you're a small dude, I guess you could be getting a hell of a lot of your carbs if you're doing one gram per pound for protein from uh, these carbohydrate sources. Is that a concern because they're lower quality? Yes. I think at least 50% of your protein should come from high quality animal or vegan vegetarian sources. The other 50%, it's okay if it comes from crap. I can get into a more advanced discussion of how to count that stuff. But um, I think that's a little bit outside the scope. But I will say that the simple advice, not assume that you can just MyFitnessPal everything and not discriminate on protein. But if you've got lean meats, eggs, milks, or vegan, vegetarian, high-quality protein products paired with pretty much every meal, then uh, the pasta, rice, et cetera stuff is okay to use. Um, if you put you this way, let's say you're in a timing situation where you've eaten meats most of the day and then you got to make up a lot of carbs at night. You just have carbs and it turns into 20 grams of protein and you check off the list that you got 20 for that meal. You got to have like at least 10 grams of a high quality protein source with that because it's not going to support your fractional synthetic rate. It's not going to be as anti-catabolic as a high quality protein source. Mm -hmm. so. so it's just having that awareness that we want to spread high quality protein through the day. And if they are on the low side, maybe bump up their protein intake by like 10, 20% but probably and bring down, potentially just bring down their carbs up their protein a bit. Yeah, or just alter the carbs to ones that don't have a lot of crossover. So rice has barely anything in it except for carbs. Eat more of that as opposed to pastas, which have a lot of protein, but it's not very high quality. So you end up kind of paying for it on the back end. Yeah. So. Okay, brilliant. Um, so let's get on to the next one. So from Izuba, uh, can you become more fast or slow twitch? Yeah, I, I can't pronounce these names. <laughs> can you become more neither, fast man. or slow twitch? due to your training. So can we change fiber types by the way we train? Not sure, but you can transition into different fiber characteristics. So based on the way you train, your faster fibers can behave more slowly and your slower fibers um, can behave even more slowly. And by the way you train, if you train the other way, if you go through periods of deloading, maintenance phases and active rest, your fibers transition back into the genetics that you were given. So yes, the transitions, as far as I'm concerned, are as far as I'm aware, all temporary, but temporarily, yes, that is the case. So one of the things that happens with a lot of dieting, because dieting itself actually transitions you to slower twitch fiber type, um, dieting hypocalorically, doing lots of cardio and training with super high reps, which a lot of people tend to do before a show and that's good or before the end of a cut, sets yourself up for the slower fiber type response, which does means that your rebound after the show muscle-wise is not going to be as good as it could otherwise been, which is why we don't want to just probably transition into super crazy high-volume masses right after a show. You might do a couple weeks of that, but then you switch back to lower-volume massing to let your muscles resensitize to some extent. Maintenance phase pretty soon after that might not be a bad idea, and then hit it after that. So yes, the transitions are real. They're at the margins, but I think they're valuable mm -hmm. to consider. Very cool. And I guess that's related to, I mean, if people wanted to relate it to something, why powerlifters don't necessarily want to go too high in their rep ranges because they will start seeing things develop, kind of go towards that slower twitch. Like For sure. Fiber type. Yep. You begin to get better at reps, not so great at uh, transferring to under max performance. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, so next question, and we're rattling through these, which is awesome, from Christopher Sobeck, is what is a good balance between super strict technique and a little bit of cheating in order to move more weight? My initial thoughts is that super strict technique is never to be violated because I really don't see the purpose of moving more weight. I honestly don't. As long as you pass... 
about 75% 1RM, 80% 1RM. Every now and again, in your bodybuilding training, you're hitting all fiber types in the way that disrupts their homeostasis the most. Even the biggest, most fastest twitch fibers now are getting their full recruitment and they're getting their full damage due to tension. So if you're doing 80%, and for you that happens to be sets of six, let's say you want to apply the most volume above 80%. You can do it in two ways, sort of. One is do three sets of six. Uh... And use a little more body language to use more weight, maybe on the eccentric. You help with the concentric, and then the eccentric, you use more weight. Um, alternatively, you can do with all strict technique and the total volume load, uh, total stimulus to your muscles, probably higher. You probably equate that to three sets of six and one set of three at the end. That does not put you at any higher risk of injury. It allows you to keep learning and executing good technique. It doesn't have tracking problems of how many reps did I do last week? Am I capable of more? Um, who knows? I was kind of cheating. Uh, and so on down the line. Fun thing to think about when you're not super strong. When you're strong enough, cheating looks like a bad idea unless you're rock stupid. And there's plenty of people that are rock stupid that do that, and they're all going to pay for it sooner or later. And if they don't, it's by sheer luck. Mm -hmm. So if you want to cheat curling, you know, 40 kilos, you'll probably be fine. It's not going to be a huge problem. If you can curl, you know, 90 kilos in a cheat, you will pop your bicep tendon off the fucking bone. Why? Why not just stick to curling 70 kilos and if you really want some eccentric action, why don't you curl up the weight and have your friend push down on it? And eccentric overload training for bottling purposes is probably highly overrated anyways. If you do enough reps, you get both concentric and eccentric. It starts to be one of those situations where it's just incredibly questionable as to why you're doing it. Do we want in a system, I want to lift more weight. Why don't you just do more reps at the same weight? The stimulus is the same. The risks are zero. So when people see, like, you know, I, I think I practice what I preach. You've all seen my training videos. I don't ever break my technique. I don't ever – and if I break my technique, I say I fucked up. I don't ever have excuses for it. My squats up to 400 kilos for reps look identical to my squats at 60 kilos. I don't – uh, they sure as hell, and Chad Wesley Smith would, would say the uh, additional thing that if you screw up your technique at the heavier weights, you really pay for it there. So when guys say, yeah, but this is heavy, that's why, no, no, yeah, this is heavy, your technique should be even better. Mm -hmm. You can do sloppy squats at 60K and be okay. Sloppy squats at uh, 200K, you will pay for them, guaranteed. So that's my views on the matter. I'm, I've had this discussion and debate with many people. I have lost quite a number of debates on social media. I have had some discussions with Eric Helms where I thought he got the better of me. Mm -hmm. I have had discussions with Eric Helms where I thought I got the better of him. I will admit that when I've been bettered and need to think, I've had many discussions privately and publicly with Greg Knuckles where he's like zinged me and I'm like, fuck, I was wrong. Um, I have yet to have any serious challenge on this cheating idea. Um, mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. And I'm not that smart, so maybe I just don't get it. But I'd be curious if anyone opened up my mind to it, uh, what exactly seems to be the benefit there. Yeah, I, I think that, the, I mean, a really important thing you said is the trackable thing. I mean, people get tempted. This is the old people chase the, the weight on the bar rather than chasing kind of just progression in different forms. And they get too into, oh, I have to hit this weight now. I have to increase the weight. And they forget that their technique has gone down and um, actually I think it was Alberto Nunez to quote him he says something like timeless form so you want to create a timeless form in terms of kind of exercise execution um, so I think that's really important actually I had a related question to this which I think uh, you'll have a great answer to in in terms of kind of wearing kind of a lifting belt or knee sleeves those sort of things which do give you a little bit of kind of knee sleeves give you a bit out of the hole depending on especially how like thick they are the same with a belt 
Uh, you can have quite a thick belt. In terms of their use, do you see them as being a benefit because potentially you can use more load, or do you think potentially that kind of that benefit goes away because it can take tension tension potentially off the quads with the knee sleeves, the bounce out of the hole um, that they provide? What was your opinion on that, Mike? The belt offers a unique example of something that is likely with enhanced stability to increase spine safety, decrease lower back injury risk, and allow you to lift still safe, still with good technique, heavy loads. The knee sleeves, unless you're using them to warm up your knees, you have bad knees and you need them for safety and injury management, I wouldn't use them for anything else. I wouldn't use them for popping out of the hole. Because remember, you're not actually lifting more weight. The knee sleeves are lifting more weight. It's a fucking rubber band. So with the belt, I think the belt allows you to lift more, but allows you to lift more safely. And it allows you to target the muscles that otherwise your lower back could limit both in safety and in strength. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, if you don't use a belt, I think you're missing out on very little, if anything at all. If you do use a belt, I think it's a-okay as long as you're using it correctly. Knee sleeves, if you need them to keep your joints warm, to keep healthy, great. If you're using them just for the extra pop out of the hole, just fucking put less weight on the bar and it'll do the same thing. Guys that wrap their knees when they leg press are some kind of special brand <laughs> of insert insult here. Uh, unless they're doing it because they have really hurt knees and they have to. If the second option is correct, I would really be interested to see their technique and their training history because you need to really actively fuck up your knees doing dumb shit for a long time to need to knee wrap them mm -hmm. uh, for leg presses. And I think most of the guys that do it, they say anything they want, but what they're really doing is they're trying to use more weight. Me personally, I'm a lazy piece of shit. I don't want to load any more plates on that stack than I have to. <laughs> if I can do the same thing with five or six plates that other people do with 10, fuck it. Why not? And I'll say something else because the leg press video is on our minds. Mm -hmm. Knee wraps, and every powerlifter will tell you this, decrease proprioception considerably. You put on a tight enough knee wrap, you have no idea where you are in space. Powerlifters and knee wraps need depth calls because they don't know how low they squat because they can't feel their... We'll get you back. Where did I leave, where did I leave off? Um, proprioception in the leg press. Yeah, yeah. So proprioception-wise, um, the knee wrapping, hard knee wraps, reduce proprioception in the knees. Most good powerlifters, or all of them pretty much, will tell you that when they get the knee wrap, they have no idea where they are in space, and they don't know where, how bent the knee is or if it's bent at all. They need depth calls oftentimes for that stuff. It's a really, really, really bad deal. Mm -hmm. So um, the reality there is I'm not really so sure knee wraps for leg press is a good idea, but I'll go further. I think it's an actively bad idea. You have to use more weight, which is pointless because the knee wraps absorb all the extra force. Your knee stability is enhanced, but the chances you're going to schmig your leg one way versus the other, as we saw in that video, are greater. And uh, I think that because your proprioception is off, it enhances other ways to tweak your knee and injury risk. Take the knee wraps off. Keep the sleeves on if you want. If you don't want them, take them off too. Get some good weightlifting shoes. And uh, go through a full range of motion. And you're going to be well served. I put 900 pounds on leg press and wrap their knees. I have bigger legs than almost all those people. Uh, and if anyone's interested in finding out if my leg workouts are actually really tough, try a couple of them out. I've posted them on Facebook before. I can post some more. If you survive, good job. <laughs> we'll be sore. Uh, I just don't see the need for that kind of stuff, to be honest. No, I completely agree. And I think some of the use of particularly like knee sleeves and like lifting belts has come from a lot of people who are getting into powerlifting and then transitioning into bodybuilding a little bit, then they just keep them on because, again, I'll be honest with myself, it's kind of like a, you, I would have to use less weight if I didn't use my knee sleeve. Sure. So that's not a it – doesn't, it doesn't – in my head it seems wrong, but when we think about it as a bodybuilder, as someone trying to grow that muscle, it's about what that muscle's feeling, the tension that muscle's getting, not yeah. the, the actual load on the bar. And it's probably yeah. safer as well. 
Well, yeah, and it beats your backup less. Remember, you have yeah. you have two MRVs we need to consider: your quad slash glute MRV and your erector back MRV. Your total spinal loading, your total uh, axial loading MRV, which usually is the limiting factor anyway. That's why you can't deadlift all the time because it beats you up. And if you can squat 150 instead of 160, but get the same forces at the quads, <laughs> right? That's a good thing. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and if you're really upset about how much weight you're not lifting, sounds like you need to go back to powerlifting instead of being bodybuilder, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, it gets stronger. There's another good one. So with good technique, if you're rocking up awesome weights, there needs to be two concerns when you're a bodybuilder. Am I lifting heavy enough to not be a pussy and to do the hyper hypertrophic stimulus? One, two, am I lifting light enough to allow management of good technique and to allow the muscles to feel it and for everything to work if the answer to any one of those is no you got to rethink your strategy mm -hmm. and on a related note i guess uh this is why as a bodybuilder if you are using maybe and we might be able to expand a bit on the squat but for like a deadlift if off the floor you want to slow down have the more control over that eccentric whereas a, as a like powerlifter it's all about like you don't need to do that necessarily and that maybe if you're using hypertrophy then you might consider that but with a squat would you as a as a bodybuilder i know with yours you're quite you don't use a lot of kind of that, the bounce out the hole um you're quite controlled into that you can use a little bit of bounce because it actually generates pretty high forces and it's a relatively safe angle down there so i think it's fine cool um but uh Definitely don't rock it out of the bottom uh, or don't take a huge intentional bounce to get the reps because then you're using passive joint forces. Mm -hmm. And why don't you just let your muscles do what they're supposed to do? You don't want to have to pause everything for 15 seconds, but you know, if you can get down there and bounce out a little bit, great. But if you're like taking deep dives because otherwise it won't work, are you just counting reps for fun or do you actually want to work out? Yeah, I can relate that to like uh, calf raises, people bouncing off their Achilles heel rather than actually kind of letting that go away and then using the muscle. You got to use less weight though, and everyone wants to use a lot yeah. of calves, huh? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I know um, we've been about an hour, so I want to let you go, Mike. And I just want to remind the audience that if you enjoyed that, that's only a tiny taste of what you can enjoy in May, uh, May 27th, 28th. Uh, we're doing a single day seminar and then a on the 28th, if you get a VIP ticket, you can enjoy a session with Mike in the gym. I say enjoy because it's probably not going to be fully enjoyable um, because it's going to be hard. Uh, but yeah, again, thank you so much, Mike. It was a pleasure talking to you and I'm sure the audience got so much value from that. Always a pleasure, Steve. I'll be back for more episodes very, very shortly. And folks in London, we are going to beat advanced concepts to death and I'm going to answer 50 million questions from general to specific. So if I have any advice, if you want to sign up for the London seminar, come ready to think, come primed to talk about advanced hypertrophy principles and applications and come with tons and tons of questions. I will answer all of them. Brilliant. So you can't ask for anything more than that. Apart from the details going to be below. Uh, so definitely sign up. And I'll talk to you guys soon. So cheers, Mike, and take care, everyone.